The The Under Channel The Under Channel The Under Channel Welcome to episode 009 of The Under Channel uh, The Original Bullshit Podcast This is Robert Under With me as always I've got Aaron Good evening How's everybody doing out there? Rounding out the cast this week, we've got Steve. How's it going, guys? And we've got a newcomer to the show, Curtis. Howdy, everyone. So, uh, fuck, how did I want to start it out? Oh, my niece was born last night. Nice. Uh, Claire Octavia Salmon. Congratulations. That's a strong name. name. Strange name, yeah. Strong. Strong name. Strong name. Strong. Yeah. (laughs) Strong like Zorn. So, uh, my wife, uh, Heather, went to uh, see the baby tonight um, while we were recording the show. Uh, and she came to me before and said, hey, well, I'm going to tell my parents that you had to work late because <laughs> I don't think they're going to understand you not coming to see the baby. That's quite, like, a, that's quite a cover. And to me, I was like, what What do you mean? This is what I do on Tuesdays. Like, it's this is what I've done on Tuesdays for like two years now. This is what I do on Tuesdays. So it wasn't really a surprise to me. I guess I kind of understand the sentiment, right? But I don't like hospitals. No addition to the family. Everybody gets together. I, I'm just going to assume, you know, there's always this weekend. True. But yep. when the baby's yeah. out of the hospital. Yeah. And, you know, she had a C-section and like, you yeah, know, like, I don't want to go in there. And like, yeah. I hate hospitals anyway. Got to eat out of a vending machine yeah. the whole time you're there. So by no means is it that I don't want to meet the baby. No, right. No, no, no. It's just, you know. I, and what are you going to do? Look through it through a window? I like I podcast on Tuesdays. So. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Get, getting get. into the actual show. Uh, the big uh, part of it this week is we have an interview with uh, Cameron Robert Harrison, uh, lead singer of the band Farseek, uh, formerly of Betterment and uh, the Cute Phils. Uh, he also is the owner operator of Rats Records out of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, that's the second half of the show. Uh, but great before interview. that, we are going to talk about uh, the LeBron James I Promise School. Who's that dude? So. This has been a huge story recently. Uh, LeBron James is assisting with the opening of a uh, state-of-the-art public school in Akron, Ohio. Um, we'll start with, actually, I've got the commercial for the show, oh, or nice. for the school. So we'll start with That's that. This cool. is posted by the LeBron James Family Foundation on their YouTube Jeez, page. Jeez, it's a four-minute commercial. <laughs> These days in Akron, Look, something feels different. Maybe. In a blue-collar city built on struggle and sacrifice, there is a rising sense of hope resting on the shoulders of the youth. But still too many inner city kids only know struggle, both at school and at home. Already falling behind by third grade, there is constant danger of falling through the cracks. I actually didn't like this video. There is another kid from Akron who knows their struggle because he was one of them. And he knows if something isn't done, they may fall even further behind. What started as a fun ride has grown into a life-changing movement. I can't wait to watch The LeBron James Family Foundation now supports over a thousand I like LeBron James. Like, I really do like respect everything he's done. I think he's just a from phenomenal athlete, phenomenal philanthropist. Hands-on experiences. I, just, I don't understand after why you have to post like a four-minute commercial and the commitment to yeah, college I don't agree with that. The program offers a complete wraparound for the student. Maybe it's just a, it's showing what the school, the I school love agenda being in this is. Program. It's life but what is that? Having the support of LeBron James right? Family Foundation. It's a public school at the end of the day. Completely. Like 
not only it's going to get the same funding life, but I'm everyone else is going to, except the fact that LeBron James is putting some addition. We are That's how I feel. We are family. I don't know where I It's not just LeBron James putting the money into it. I mean, it is. I mean, it's the James Family Foundation. Um, and because they have some, they're putting up them, the money to help they boost too the cost. They as have well. a chance because they're going to do things differently than what normal brick and mortar schools do. That when it first opens, it's only going to be a third grade and fourth grade institution. Just for them. That's it. Two hundred forty students. Success of the okay. I and their goal program. by twenty twenty-two is to be a first grade through eighth grade elementary school or beginning school. Alright, my basic understanding was it was a bit it was an entire elementary school. Okay. Are committed to working together to design a brand. It's a little bit yeah, it's more of like a for some of higher learning academy. You know, it's a it's a public school academy to be special. It will incorporate a rigorous What they're trying to do too is they're trying to get kids approach to learning that cater specifically to these kids who need it the most. Are failing in the system as is. And this is another school that can focus on them. The school is to ease these burdens for students and families so they can focus on learning. It will be a complete wraparound So although the main story in this is LeBron James is opening a school um, he's doing such an amazing thing. Uh, the truth is, he's assisting with opening a school. Um, he's only involved in the setup of the school um, and some additional funding over the next couple years while they get it up and running. Um, at the end of it, it is just going to be another Akron public school. It'll probably be called the LeBron James I Promise School, just like a lot of uh, schools across the country have presidents' names or famous people's names. Uh, it'll just be one there, but. It's not like he's going into the school business, right? It's not a private academy. This isn't exactly the first time this has been done. It's just this is the first time you've had a gigantic name who is spearheading or is the figurehead to something like this. There are other schools across the country that are opened up with the basic same same concept. But it, yeah, it's important to know that it is a... Uh, a public school we are it gets public funds we are committed. and the way that that's generated is from we the students in the school you get so much money per student is your funding is and the IPS. biggest fear too from a lot of the schools in that area is that this school is going to pull away students out of those districts out of those schools and reduce the money that they get man we we've talked a little bit about public school stuff I like it. I think I'm just going to, I don't even want to shit on the story, right? This is a good thing he's doing. Yeah, Akron has been beat up a long time. It's not um, a fucking metropolis, right? So he's, yeah. it's nice to see him doing that. Um, I wish any athletes in our city would take any interest in the Detroit public school system, short of uh, the Lions, the tight. I know I see him. They're like, they're going to pass out baseball gloves at a local high school, right? I mean, LeBron, he's putting up a fucking school. But right? do we have anyone on in our city right now who has that big name like LeBron? Stafford. Stafford, for sure. All right. Miguel Cabrera. Stafford, yeah. Miguel Cabrera. But not to the LeBron James level, though. I no. mean, only Still because on the same. It's... at one point Cabrera was. Yeah. At one point Calvin was. We have had those guys. At one point, all of the members of the 0405 Pistons mm -hmm. were big enough names. And guess what? Detroit was still fucked up then. That's true. Right? Yeah. So this is a great major, uh, one of the biggest investments I've ever seen like a private citizen type athlete make towards a, uh, I guess, a, a single city. You know, this is a huge, uh, huge boost for the area. I think it's a great story. Yeah. And it's neat what they're going to try and fund too. They're going to like 
most of the time you hear stories about how teachers have to buy the supplies for the classroom. They got to buy the pencils. They got to buy the paper. The James Family Foundation is going to cover those costs. They're going to cover the costs for kids who need uh, bikes. They're going to give helmets, bicycles, you know, to help them get through those neighborhoods and get to the school. Um, things along those lines. So there's a lot of stuff. Once you read the story, there's a lot of hand clapping out there for it. So there's a lot of details you can read that way. And there's not as much like the other side of the story. But I think overall, I think the promise of the school, no, no pun intended, is is better than the, than the, the naysayers on it. Uh, second story, um, we talked about the, uh, the new Ford tech center they're building with the old... Uh, train station downtown uh well ford has been buying up all that land down there um because they are talking about doing a major complex right they want to bring the ubers the uh the major companies across the world hey bring your next major office to detroit we're trying to build a silicon valley east type situation right well there's one small plot of land just a few blocks away from where that's happening that is owned by uh the restaurant owners of a a restaurant called traffic jam and snug it's a as far as I could tell, it's kind of like a farm-to-table kind of... Uh, hmm. Interesting. I don't want to say hearty food. You know, just kind of like good American food. Like, it's not Mexican. Locally it's not sourced. Any, locally sourced, right. Because farm-to-table is, as far as I can tell, it's supposed to be one of the biggest movements in Detroit. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. I, I don't know. I, I, the Anthony I Bourdain I special. On, I know, and um, I, I didn't believe they, it when I saw it in that either. So, <laughs> you know, I just I don't see a lot of credibility farms, you know? does Bourdain have? Yeah, but... Uh, they own the piece of land, and what they're talking about doing is uh, the the owner, the man, uh, the man. Fuck, I thought I wrote his name down. Fuck. All right, we'll put in the credits. Um, him and his wife, like years ago, had bought this hundred and thirty year old farm that was on a plot of land near where he grew up in, like southern Washington, and they bought it when before it was going to be demolished, and they just had it in storage for all this time. Okay. So now they want to take that old barn, they want to build it on this plot of land, and build like a. Uh, farm to table like a massive kind of restaurant slash event hall uh hosting area right in that that's uh part of town right so anywhere else it would be like this is badass right yeah. we're getting a unique interesting um building being put up in the area the, the, the idea is though at the end of the day that piece of land could be worth millions and millions and oh, millions yeah. of dollars yeah, especially if, where it's going to be exactly at. oh yeah so will they eventually be offered so much money that they can't turn it down Probably. Um, I guess it's hard to say, right? Having a good restaurant, having a prime restaurant in that location is about as um, a profitable area as you can have yeah, in absolutely. any part of the country right now. Especially once right it there. starts booming. Yeah. Like cool. if you build your, re- if they build their restaurant on that piece of land and in five years it goes under, well, a lot of restaurants do, right? That land is worth more money because people have built up around it. Mm-hmm. In theory, mm-hmm. we all know that. Detroit projects have fallen off before. Yeah. But in theory, if this is where it has, it needs to be in five or six years, that plot of land might be something that you're having major people say, oh, man, you have a piece in that area? I want that. Even for a fucking parking lot, really. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And they'll pay millions. Yeah. At first, I was I, I took this as an angle, and I was really, it's funny, Brian's not here. It was an anti-gentrification angle, <laughs> right? The idea is like, Oh, you're coming on all these big companies coming in Detroit, man. They're making it all corporate. Like we're gonna build a little farm and table, you know. But reading into the story, I think it is with good intentions. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's like yeah. that was their master plan all along. It just so happened that I Ford just, bought the train station I can't, and did that. I can't buy into the the gentrification argument. I get it. 
I get what's being said, but it can't be miles and miles of blight forever. Mm. Too bad. We've got to. We've got to evolve. We've got to turn it around. Hashtag support gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a bold statement. Love it. <laughs> All right. Uh, last story for the introduction. Um, this is about six seven days old. Um, this actually happened. Uh, I had gone to the hospital with Heather. We went down to DMC uh, in downtown Detroit, and we woke up the next day to this story, nice. which had happened at Detroit Receiving, because uh, I had to research. I'm like, holy shit, a woman got her, the shit beat out of her at the hospital I was at? Like, we were at the emergency room. We didn't hear anything. Like, how do we miss this? We were there until like 4.30 the next day, right? Okay. And uh, no, it was Detroit Receiving. So my experience at the DMC was phenomenal and uh this is the opposite of that experience yeah, this is very much opposite this is going to be uh whoever hasn't seen this if you go on fox's two website you can watch it but be warned it's graphic this video is as graphic as it is disturbing a woman by a police officer pummeled is a good term this dude jesus blows she naked too Damn. That video begins She's got with a chin the woman on her. naked cursing at police and threatening them as well. One oh, of the officers tries to restrain the woman. She then sits down while resisting that officer trying to restrain her. And then it appears that she spits on another one. And that's when the fist, fist starts to fly. The officer begins punching the woman repeatedly in her face, head, and back. All of it happening while the other officers attempt to restrain yeah, the woman. You know, this is just All somebody like sitting on a bed a waiting for an exam. Yeah, and they're just like, I, yeah, there's like, I hit the check. Yeah, they did. She says it was clear the woman in the video was mentally unstable. There's no reason she believes someone. Overall, no. You got four officers there. I don't want to criticize. You know the officers of Detroit. Yeah, I just felt like no, they go through them, more shit than probably any other cop. Her, you know, like or at least try to stop him. Like he was like physically like giving her. Like, but there's so other like, ways to talk do this. that way, right? Yeah. And the lady is screaming like, "Stop hitting her like that!" Would this like, have made the news if it would have been like a naked that. man? <laughs> I think so because it's yeah, you know it's yeah. it's pretty it's, brutal. It's domestic. I think it would have made it either way. Yeah. yeah, and it's at a hospital where you know you're that's true. Buddy, I don't know who you are. You're about to get chlamydia. Gross. Man, the Detroit Police Department's lucky that both people in this are black. Like if it had been like a white oh, cop beating up a black oh, woman, oh shit, that was brutal too. He burnt down. Fucking thrown fists. That's not the first time he's punched a woman. That would have been worldwide news. That's a pretty uh, wild accusation there. Yeah, the yeah, the uh -huh. down beginning with security who immediately filed an internal That was for Babsy. And then DPD now for their part, they're saying that once they learned about what happened here and their officers were in it, they immediately uh, launched an internal investigation and were yeah, hoping to learn more from DPD soon. I mean, he might not be fired, but he's definitely Like these cops, though, at hospitals, they go through a lot of oh, shit. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's the last I had seen is that he was on suspended leave for yeah. investigation. I don't his, see his how he'll gone. get his job back. His job's no, gone. No. Yeah, he's no going to have a hard time. Like, he's yeah. probably done as a cop, period. Was maybe. There, maybe. Any injuries to the woman? Then? I'm sure she had lots of contusions. Yeah. But, again, I won't for a second judge what the officers of Detroit have to go through on a daily basis no. and what they choose to do. But that was that was pretty yeah. brutal. That but was they, taken to a different level. Uh, I'm going to agree with you there, but like, so do you hold them to, do you have to hold them to a higher standard because they're police officers? No. 
So that I'm not saying that's okay. That's, I'm not saying that's justified. I'm, they could have the four of them could have. There's so much. It, there's so many different ways you could have done yeah, that. It could have yeah. been a different yeah. way. There's no what. There's no reason why he needed to hit her. You had four cops. You you had two probably two adult men that could probably just restrain her and then put her in handcuffs. Right. To a point, exactly. I give the officers, the men and women, ninety nine percent confidence that they have the ability to choose what the appropriate action is to take at the time because they're put in that shit every single minute of the day that they are up against that kind of stuff not saying that that woman was like coming at them with knives and guns and stuff but that kind of thing could turn into something else on an officer in an instant so i give them the the leeway to to handle a situation the way they need to that's that's how i view it at least you know, if an officer needs to handle a situation a certain way, for the most part, I support what they do. For the most part, yeah, yeah. I'll agree with that part. Yeah. I just, it's just with this story, I just don't believe that physical it needed to go that no. physical. No, not at if, all. And if they want to end stories like this happening, like this needs to be, I'm sorry, like make an example of them. Like I'm sorry, putting them on leave, firing them. I'm, I'm sorry, like criminal charges, mm-hmm. like a state employee right or city employee whatever it would be police officer is assaulted a citizen a private citizen yeah yep. I'm, I'm sorry like if the mayor of your city came to your house and started punching you in the face like it would be a little more than he just loses his job oh yeah like i i get that we give police officers all the credit in the world by all means i would never do that job it's horrifying to me but they're a necessary thing but i think at uh this situation specifically. Yeah, this is a bad one for cops. Yeah. All right, so we will be back in just a moment with our interview with Cameron Robert Harrison. TheUnderChannel.com, home of The Underchannel. Potting music, movies, news, and more. All right, I'm going to go ahead and play A-, minus, uh, Sting in My Sebring. I told you guys this song existed. There used to be a really badass video on YouTube that somebody had put together because this is a whole bunch of... Uh, references and they they had taken clips to put it together but we'll start with the actual song you hung out with me probably heard me rap this quite a few you know what? Fuck it. Nip it up and tuck it. Here to bring the ruckus to you, poor motherfuckers. Ain't no biggie, just bag it up and dump it. Fucking Miss Piggy with a dick up on my big DX can suck it. I like that, like, kind of rattling face. Ball smack the pussy like the U-Haul truck hit. Dick is like a hacksaw. My Jimmy Duncan. If I'm not shining, Sir Michael can buff it. That's the main reason why my gold ain't dusted. End of discussion. Girls get concussions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go Yo, Mosca, what up, nigga? Oh, like a black Hulk Hogan and W the slogan. Stand for a nigga with Olsen. Growing up atrocious. Damn, I'm so cruel. But I'm so ravishing. Yeah, I met like this guy Rick when I was hanging out with his, my like buddy uh, Lloyd produced my these two like rappers that they like worked with. Oh, Richard oh, Red. Wise guys. No, nice guys. Like King Kong Bundy. Yeah, 
Dude, I just saw the best one ever. Uh, it was Lil Boo. B U U. Like the like the DJ one. Yeah. He's a white guy though, so it's not very good. It's Boo. I mean, I guess you can't do that. What's that little fat girl on TV? Baby Boo Boo or whatever? Honey Boo Boo. Let's get her a hip hop album. Give it, give it a couple more years. She'll come back. I can see her doing country though. That that catch me outside girl. I know. She was up for best rapper of the year. A Grammy. A Grammy. A Grammy. I'm not fucking around. Her shit. It's such a weird for a Grammy. There's no reason. That's why I know. It's like Donald Trump being president. This is the world we fucking live in. A Maury Povich idiot was up for a Grammy. I actually wasted time watching like her bits of her music video making. Yeah, crazy. What's she calling herself? Like Bad Barbie or some shit? You can't. She's like twelve. Yeah. So anyone, I don't even know if he's still around, but check out A minus. I would. That's what I like about doing this. It gives me a chance to hear shit that I would not hear otherwise. He'll have a guy on the street corner, hustling. That was a very '90s beat. Like mid early yeah. hip hop nineties beat, I liked it a lot. Yeah, th- that's something I would actually like roll with. Like, yeah, I, I could hear this guy on a CD. I could hear him collaborate yeah. with MF Doom for sure. It was just like a you know fucking demo they were giving away. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's ever released like an album or anything. The Under Channel Subterranean Entertainment. Time to unplug and sink in. Pop punk will always be my favorite genre. Uh, the diversity in bands that the title represents may be a surprise to anyone whose definition of pop-punk owes its formation to the radio waves of the early 2000s. The genre itself has moved past the subgenre label years ago and can offer tunes for any mood. Our guest today's approach to the form is one of the most personal ex- uh, examples I've come across. Whether it's Betterman's, The Cute Fills, or his current project, Farseek, there's no denying that it's Cameron Robert Harrison. Uh, Cameron, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, I first came across your music um, on Lost State Records uh, web store. Uh, this was years ago. They had been doing a sale um, for one of the, uh, just kind of for their entire catalog. I think they only had about seven releases at the time. Uh, and I came across uh, the Betterment EP. Um, so was Betterment the first band that you're in? Uh, it was the first like band that really did much of anything. I was in a few bands in high school, but uh, nothing really notable. Okay. Uh, tell us about the Sarasota music scene, where the band was from. Uh, there were a bunch of older bands there. Uh, that uh, one of them was called Rational Anthem. I think they're still doing stuff. They've moved out to I think Wyoming or something, but uh, they played a lot of like Ramones core stuff. Um, but we weren't really uh, in with any of the older people, and a lot of the younger people weren't really doing anything we were excited about. So we just started like booking our own shows and started like carved their own little hole into the scene uh and then a bunch of other bands started popping up uh that we play with uh one we're going on tour with uh later this month called the uh, worst party ever uh one of my other favorites was a uh, friendship of america uh dirty talk they're like a really good like screamo band uh and should dynasty they're like a chip tune like sort of like yeah, they're sweet. They're like a sort of bomb the music industry ripoff. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the time frame for Betterment? 
Uh, we started at the end of 2010 and then broke up. What, that was like my senior year of high school, and we broke up uh, at the like right at the, like halfway through the senior year of uh, like college for me. Mm. Um, yep. Awesome. Uh, the band was pretty prolific. I mean, you guys were only around. Yeah, you only around for about five years. Did you do a lot of the recording yourself? Um, so when we started off. Uh, <clears throat> We were recording with a guy named Paul Safara. Uh, I knew him from like hardcore bands I played in in high school, uh, and he was in a band called uh, With Increase. And he recorded like a bunch of bands in the area, so we recorded our first two EPs with uh, Paul. And then uh, I had a bunch of like random microphones laying around, and realized it was like about the same price for me to go buy like a like four six track computer interface to record our own songs so that's when i started recording everything uh and i don't think i really like got good at it until uh, i had moved up to columbus i think because a lot of my recordings are kind of rough but uh it's just a lot of like trial and error that's like how all diy stuff is yeah yeah definitely uh, how did you get hooked up with uh with lost state records um i actually don't remember i think trey reached out to me about putting out the album, but I don't actually remember. Uh, earlier Betterment seemed like a little more straightforward punk rock. Uh, was it a conscious decision to explore the more slacker-oriented stuff uh, of the later music? Um, I think to an extent it was. Uh, when we had first started out, uh, our original bass player, Shay, uh, wanted to uh, sound a little like harder and more punk. Uh, and I think I wanted to do that too, but then uh, as I went through college, I got into more, uh, I guess, slack, like slack rock bands like uh, Pavement uh, and then other stuff like I was really into Jawbreaker in college. Yeah, definitely. I can, I can see that influence. Yeah. A song like uh, Shinji Akari, uh, your torn from a notebook style lyricism is on full display. Uh, what was your influence at this point? Like, what made you shift to uh, such a personal style of lyrics? Um, there was this band called Maths. I was reading an interview with them, and their singer had mentioned uh, that, like, he literally pulls his lyrics from a journal. So I was like, oh, I think that that's cool, and did a lot of thinking and, like, trying it, and I thought, came to the conclusion that seemed more uh, raw and real or whatever. Uh, so... I went with like that sort of lyric, lyric writing for a little while. Um, yep. So I think I literally did just pull that from a journal. But. Yeah. So when you were, when you were writing uh, songs like that, did the music come first or were you taking like pieces that you considered good from your notebooks and then turning them into songs? Um, for the writing process, I do, I do both. Sometimes I'll start with a song and then like I'll uh, pull from notes that I've written. Uh, I had read somewhere that it was like a like your lyrics should be like a snapshot of whatever like moment you're going through at a certain point. So I, I was like kind of really true to that for a while. So I wasn't like going back and like rewriting things or whatever. But then uh, I've, that's changed a little bit. Uh, so now I, now it's a mix between the two. I, I usually write lyrics first now, and I think at that time I was writing lyrics first then, and then songs but it really just depends a lot of times they were like they're like hand in hand like at the same time yeah definitely have you ever uh, ruffled any feathers in your personal life due to some of the songs you've written 
Um, yeah, one time somebody thought a, a Farseek song was about them and it uh, wasn't. They, they were, like, really upset about it. Uh, it, it, was, it was called How. It was, like, one of my really good friends. I've, like, been, I met them on, like, the first two Kills tour, and uh, I've been friends with, like, their friend group because I met them on, like, the first Betterment tour a couple years before that, and it was, like, uh, I don't know, it just felt kind of bad. But so, yes, but it, it, it's not a frequent thing. Nice. Um, so we're going to go ahead and listen to the song uh, Shinji Akari by uh, Betterman. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about that song? Um, it's about the end of Evangelion and a dream I had where my friend that was like really into doing cocaine and watching Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, the crossover between those two things, I guess. <laughs> nice. Right, let's go ahead yep. and listen to that now. Covered in cum, so fucked up. Covered in cum, so fucked up. I remember what I thought when you're doing that. Then I remember that nothing really matters at all. I remember what I thought when you're doing that. Then I remember that nothing really matters at all. Algernon Cadillac ripoff band that we tried to do. It, I don't think it was very good, but it was called uh, Surfing on Tears. It was uh, interesting. Did you ever uh, record anything with that band? Yeah, we have like an iPhone demo that's on Bandcamp, and then we have another like more thought out demo that I don't know if it's executed well, but it's fine. And we have like some like later recordings that we're we're never gonna end up releasing, but I've like, posted them like a year ago. On those are all on Bandcamp too. Some of them are just instrumental tracks. But nice. Do you know the uh, the URL to that Bandcamp? You can plug real quick. Sure. It's a surfingontears.bandcamp.com. Awesome. Um, I love the art behind uh, the Saint Mark's EP. Have you always done art for your own projects? Uh. Pretty much exclusively, uh, the exceptions have been uh, this friend named Pam. She uh, has a fake last name on the internet that changes, so I don't remember what it is. But uh, she went to Cal Arts and uh, she did art for uh, Razor Spirits, which is the last Betterment album. And uh, she also did a cute felt T-shirt design. Uh, but I think aside from that, I've, I've mostly done everything. Nice. Um, what would, who would you say is your biggest influence on your art? I think 
as an adult, my biggest influence on art was like uh, this manga artist called uh, Asano Inio. Uh, they wrote things like Goodnight Pun Pun and A Girl by the Shore and a, a few others, but uh, they combine like a lot of uh, like when I was younger, my favorite part of like comics and stuff were like all the halftone dots, which is like what like blended me like screen printing and whatnot was like all like the uh, dot patterns I thought were like really intricate and cool. So they found a way to like mash up like uh, sort of realistic but also kind of cartoony drawings with like a lot of like pretty realistic like halftone dot patterns, like mm-hmm. so sort of like collage looking stuff. So I think that was like one of my biggest biggest things. Nice. As an adult. Yeah. Uh, in the Good Fills, uh, you played with your brother in the band. Um, what was that like? And uh, does he still play music at all? Yeah, so he plays, uh, well, kind of. He has a band called Marimo that's not very active uh, anymore, but they were awesome. I think they put out a demo in, like, 2015 uh, or 2016. They are really fucking good, though. Um, and it was re- it was really cool getting to play in a band with my brother. Uh, he had never been in bands before that. So, like, his first show was uh, at this bar we used to play at in uh, St. Augustine all the time. It was with uh, Top Bunk, Jillian Carter, and I think it's being called Messes from Kentucky. And it might have just been Mess, but one way or another. Uh, and then his second show was, oh, okay, you're going to be in the band, and then we went on tour together. So uh, he filled on bass the first time and then ended up playing guitar Uh because we used to be a four-piece when he had joined the band. It was, it was a really fun experience. Uh, we became way closer because of it. Uh, and I don't know, I think we just got a deeper understanding of each other. Yeah, because that's of right. it. Yeah. yeah, it was awesome. Uh, I would. I wish he would. I wish that we still lived near each other so we could still be in a band together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm sure, I'm sure he's still in Florida, I'd assume. Yeah, he's talking about... Moving up here, I'm not sure if he's going to do it, but I hope he does. No, don't tell him about the winners. He's been up here during the winners. He didn't hate it. No? Yeah, he, uh, he played bass on a Far Seek tour, and, yeah, it was in the winter. We came up from Florida, and it was just like this like slow creep up. As it was like, okay, now it's going to be 50 degrees instead of 70 degrees in Florida, and yeah. now it's like 20, and now it's like, oh, yeah, now it's going to be like 9 degrees. <laughs> yeah. Uh the Cute Phil's uh, releases featured some of the same songs re-recorded. Was there a reason behind this? Um, I think with our proper releases, it was like to maybe get the songs right or whatever. Uh, but there's also a couple. There's a couple releases on there that were like cassette tape only that weren't going to get posted on the internet. But then after we broke up, I was like, I'm just going to post them on the internet. Hmm. Uh, just in case, I was like, ah, it's not fair that only people in 10 cities got to have access to these, I guess, but like, no one really cares about it anyway. So. Yeah, I thought, I mean, it's kind of a cool thing. Like, I always uh, think about, like, what if a huge band, like a band like Nirvana, had done, you know, multiple versions of a song, and each time they had done a recording session, you'd have uh, all these different versions to hear and kind of hear how the bands progress. So I've always thought that was kind of a cool thing. Yeah, I, I think it, it can be fun. Uh, my my girlfriend was really into Reliant K in high school, so there was a couple songs that were that they did that she was like, "Oh look, they did multiple versions! Isn't this so cool?" <laughs> uh, you uh, you definitely have a distinctive singing voice. Uh, do you ever wish you had a more traditional one? Uh, not not really. Most of my favorite singers uh, growing up didn't really have uh, traditionally good singing voices, uh, like. 
was really influenced by uh, Davey Von Bolin from The Promise Ring, and uh, I think like Tim Kinsella with like Captain Jazz and like earlier uh, Joan of Arc stuff was like really exciting to me because I was like, oh, this is cool because they're just like doing what just like comes naturally to them and they're not just like uh, trying to. I think sing songy stuff is like cool and like has its place, but I don't always think it's like the most like automatically makes it more valid because it's like considered traditionally good or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Have you ever heard the band J Church? Um, I have heard them. I can't tell you much about them. They they have the drummer from Jawbreaker, right? I I believe they're tied to them somehow. Uh, I know the lead singer of the band had passed away back in like 2009. Um, but oh. they're like the closest comparison I could I could put to the kind of music you do. Uh, uh, the you know pop punk with some prominent bass and uh, just very uh, not gonna say stream of consciousness, but like kind of off the dome kind of like lyricism. I've always kind of tied you two together. I was just wondering if you'd ever actually heard the band. So I will definitely listen to them. Yeah, yeah. Check out uh, my favorite place in Ivy League would probably be the two songs to start with. Cool. I will check those out. Uh, where does the Japanese influence uh, in your lyrics come from? You've got songs like uh, Harakiri, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, which awesome. Somebody in like else in the world reference Lone Wolf and Cub and something. And then uh, King Ghidorah. Uh, where, where did that come from? Um, our drummer used to live in Japan. Nice. Um, yes, and he wrote like a lot of the song lyrics and mm. did a lot of it. I don't know. Uh, Walker Jesse. He's not really doing anything now, though. That's what kind of caught my attention. Rob was showing me your band and uh, kind of giving me a brief lowdown on the history of everything you've done. And that was one of the things that stuck out to me, too, is uh, it's kind of that influence of Japanese culture. So that's kind of neat to hear. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it was, it was cool. And, yeah, it was it was cool. It was like uh, something different to think about with songs and stuff than just, I don't know. Yeah, relationships, whatever. That's what most people think about. Yeah, the Cute Phils were only a band for a short time. Uh, did it end because you were moving up for school? Uh, yeah, we right when I moved up to Columbus, I didn't move up for school. I, but uh, my girlfriend had gotten into a PhD program oh, nice. in Columbus, so I, I moved up with her. But um, she, or sorry, um. We ended because, like, right at the end, like, uh, Walker was, like, one of our uh, main songwriters, and uh, things weren't working out with him in the band, so he wasn't in it. We did, like, one more tour, uh, like, with uh, Mike from Betterment playing drums, um, and it just was like, okay, that was cool. I think we're done, and then we just, like, never really talked about it again. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'll, actually, we're going to play the song uh, Short Haired Girls by The Cute Phils. Uh, you have anything to say about this song? That was originally a Surfing on Tears song. Same. I feel by blood. 
boss's work uh but uh one artist i thought was like kind of cool I, I forgot about and never thought i would work with uh just because maybe because i forgot about them but uh benjamin landy uh he did a bunch of t-shirts for like you could buy them at a hot topic in probably any city in the country he did like all the designs for like uh uh, like Devil Wars Prada and like Set Your Goals and a bunch of like, you know, like that scene rock stuff. But he also did stuff like Less Than Jake. Um, and I did printed shirts for his like shoegaze band. So I thought that was kind of funny that yeah. I was printing art that he made. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what's the coolest project you've had a chance to do? Um, I think one of the most rewarding ones was uh, recently my friend, Darian works at this program called Safe Point in Columbus, and it is a needle exchange program uh, or syringe exchange. So uh, they help make sure that people aren't uh, injecting with dirty needles. Uh, and so like, it really helps with not spreading HIV and hepatitis C and whatnot. But uh, Governor Kasich, he's a governor of Ohio, he uh, wanted to not disperse funding to syringe exchange programs uh, because he wants it to be like punishing or whatever. Yeah. Things it's a waste of money. Like, it doesn't really make sense. You like save like a shit ton of money by uh, by having preventative care programs like that because it costs like a dollar for a needle or whatever. Um, Compared to but then it, care benefits. Yeah. Oh, it, it costs somebody like over, like, well over $300,000 like throughout their life uh, in order to... Uh, in order to start treating themselves for like HIV or hepatitis C and stuff like that. It's just like they're, and also the in value, like, can you put a dollar amount on saving somebody's life from, like, I don't know, but priceless. Uh, yep. So uh, we had done a postcard printing party at my, at my work or I didn't, I printed all a bunch of postcards and uh, sent off postcards to uh, Governor Kasich uh, the original intent was to tell him to continue to fund syringe exchange programs, but uh, like two days before the event, he decided to disperse the funding to syringe exchange programs, which we thought was great. But then we're also like, hey, uh, we're still watching you, and you should uh, definitely disperse funding and like not kick down and be a fucking asshole. So that's, <laughs> I think the tone of yeah, definitely. Yeah, on. You don't back down now. Right. And it was also like, hey, there's still so much more you can do. That was what, how a lot of them were written. So I was like, that's fine. Um, so where can people find your screen printing stuff? And are you available to hire if anyone listening is interested in getting something printed? Um, yeah. So I post my screen printing stuff on just on the Farseek Instagram page usually, uh, which is uh, Farseek and then an X at the end. Uh, and then... 
you can email me at Cameron, which is C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at actualbeer.com. I work at a brewery. I'm the art coordinator there. Uh, so, like, I print all their T-shirts and uh, work on different art projects for them. Like, uh, we're, uh, we have a bunch of pinball tournaments and stuff like that. Some of them are, like, a big illustration project where we, like, crossovers crossover t-shirts with like a the pinball tournament and then also like the different beers that we brew mm. it's like different it's pretty fun but nice. how is the uh brewing scene in ohio or i guess columbus in general um i think saturated okay there's like 41 breweries we have a we have a thing called the columbus ale trail it's like a little book it's like uh, you get a stamp for the different stops on it. And I know some of the breweries are on there like twice. They have different locations. Uh, and we have like some that are not local, like a platform is a big one in Columbus, but they are from Cleveland originally. I think there's a couple others that are like, I think Ram is one of the ones that I don't think they're actually from Columbus and they're like a chain or something, but there's like five of them. And maybe not, maybe not five. There might be three, which is still a lot. Uh, but we have good beer. Nice. I'm going to check you guys out. I'm in Columbus at least 10, 12 times a year, so I'm going to have to check that Columbus Ale Trail out. Dude, we're the first one on it. Uh, actual brewing. It's pretty cool. We have uh, a new location that's getting ready to open up. Uh, it's going to be like a brew pub, but right now we have like a warehouse, and I think what the game plan is we're going to use the brew pub to fund the where like the warehouse, which is out by the airport, uh, and make it into like a Meow Wolf, if you're familiar with that. It's like what George R. R. Martin is like, oh, I have too much money. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a giant installation art exhibit. So, I don't know, it's like a weird oddity thing is what we're shooting for, like hmm. odd art installations everywhere. We we book shows out there and stuff, too. Nice. It's, it's pretty awesome. sweet. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Rats Records. Uh, why the decision to start your own label? Um... I have, I think I developed most of the skills I needed to like just do stuff myself on most every single level. Uh, so I was like, okay, I might as well like give back and help out people that have like continuously helped me out and like things that I'm excited about because I'm always seeing my friends like releasing music and it's like a lot of times it's not getting like a physical release. So. Uh, that's always a bummer to me. I I don't really care much about records, but like I love CDs. Um, and I don't know. Pe- yeah, people always like make these like shitty like burnt CD things, and it always bums me out when you could have something really cool. So I don't know. I think it's like it's uh, an excuse to make more art while also helping out friends and whatnot. So. Nice. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Wayward Kid, who uh, is doing a release or has done a release for your label? Yeah, uh, they're awesome. I met them with uh, Cute Phils originally. Uh, they played in a band called Wicked Pretty, uh, Mark Meridian and uh, Jordan Velasco. So there were the two guys in it, uh, or two of the guys in it. Uh, it's them and Hannah White and a guy named Tom. Uh, but I've, Wicked Pretty had played with Cute Phils, and uh, they've like continuously like booked all my bands coming through Atlanta over and over again. They always do like a really cool, like our wicked pretty was like an emo, like pop punk ska band. Uh, there, but without any horns, which is like my favorite kind of ska, like, no horns, but, um, 
then they made this band called Labor Kid, and I was like really excited about it. So I, they sent me the first demo, and I was like, hey, we should put out your uh, album when you go do it. So we went on and did a little uh, tour with them uh, up through like New Jersey and Philly. It was like three or four days, but they did like, a, like nice. nine days or something. But yeah, it was really cool. They're they're just awesome. Uh, I've been friends with them for years. Uh, they have they used to run a house space called uh, Parts Unknown, and uh, that was really great. Now uh, they work with a new spot called Camp Hope, and it's run by like Dakota Floyd from The Wild. Uh, who used to run the calendar at the Wonder Route, which is like a really big like, prolific DIY venue mm. in Atlanta. You know, they're, they're just awesome people. They're just older pop punk dudes. Yeah. Really good guys. Yeah. Uh, any other upcoming projects for Rats you want to talk about? Um, we're planning our next releases. I think we're going to be, I think we're going to do vinyl for the new Farseek album. Uh, and we're also talking with a band called Minor Love from Ohio about releasing their music, but uh, nothing's too set in stone yet. Awesome. Um, you seem to have a pretty strong commitment to the DIY culture. Uh, where does that come from? Um, I think the, the like coolest part about DIY is it like, offers a, like, a place you can practice alternative values. Uh, you don't have to like, you get to like create your own vision of uh, what you think is important and you're not just like, oh, here's what a, a store is going to sell to me. And, like, that's, like, what you're inherently going to place value in. I think that's, like, pretty important. And also to, like, have places you can, like, practice uh, radical ideas without it being, like, I don't know. Everyone needs a break from whatever, like, mainstream culture is. I just think it's, like, a good spot. You can, like, practice it. Uh, and, hmm. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, Farseek next, but first I'd like to play a song, uh, actually the first Farseek song I ever heard, off of 2014's uh, really lame EP. Uh, this song is called Bicycle. Uh, you got anything you can say about this song before we give it a listen? Uh, not really. Columbus music 
Um, I think it's always growing. Uh, there's a lot of like college kids that are like coming and going. So like it, like like everywhere, it's kind of like ebbs and flows. Uh, but I think right now we have like a lot of like newer people popping up, like trying to start their own house venues and starting new bands that aren't just like the same people, which is exciting. And yeah, I don't know, people are like passing on the torch, which I think is pretty sweet. Is it uh, pretty supportive there? Um, I think so. I think it just depends on like who you hang out with. Like there's some people that are always like, oh, it's like negative and catty. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't really, I don't see that. It just depends on who you're hanging out with. But it's like a big enough city that like it has its own pockets in it, mm. like all over the place. So I think it just depends on where you're at. Yeah. Did you already know any people uh, in the area before you moved there? Uh, sort of. I've I had uh, there's a record label called Tight Wolf Records, and they put out a lot of like uh, emo and like screamo stuff. Uh, and this dude named Matt Salea, who played in a band called uh, History's History and Graves and Dog Breeds. I think they're now called Bike Crews. But I met him like when I moved up here, and he introduced me to some people. Uh, so I, I kind of knew people, but not really. Uh, we were supposed to go through Columbus on one Betterment tour, but our car broke down. Mm. So I ended up not making it. But, so I didn't really know anyone, but mm. it's it's supportive. People are really welcoming and, like, open to new people. Nice. So. Uh, back in May, you released a remastered version of the album, Fear of Missing Out. Uh, why the decision to give it another uh, version? Um, I wanted to do it since, like, almost immediately after I put it out because... I sold out of the album almost immediately and uh, like right it's like we went on like the tour supporting it on the tour right after that we sold out of like almost all of them uh, except for a box of them which there was like, you know, like five or whatever and we actually left that somewhere in Michigan and then we, we picked them up like a year later but um, um, yeah so we I wanted to I wanted to sell more but I like that album a lot. It was like a, the first like full length album I'd done that I thought was like good, I guess. Cause I'd done one with cute fills that was like I don't know, I think it sucked. And then one with a betterment that I thought was just like I don't know, it just sounded like weird in college and you just wanted to do something so you just did it or whatever. Mm. So I don't know. It's like it was like my first like full like, all right, here's 20 minutes of something I think is, like, good. Yeah. Did you uh, did you screen print the Fear of Missing Out cover for the new release? Yep. Uh, yep, I designed it all fantastic. on the Thanks. It was a doodle I did when I was trying to conceptualize. I was a substitute teacher for a little bit, and it was, like, fifth-grade classroom, and I just doodled it on a sticky note and then made it later. <laughs> so. Uh, so if anyone's listening to this today, uh, August 10th, the day it comes out, uh, you are actually starting tour tonight in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, with Worst Party Ever. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your tour? Yeah, so we're starting off at uh, that new spot. I was talking about uh, Camp Hope. Uh, it's in uh, a small part of Atlanta called Decatur. Um, and then we're heading up to uh, Knoxville. Uh, we're playing in a spot called Fort Sanders Yacht Club, uh, which I think is a bar. And then we're playing... Uh, an emo night, I think is what they're branding it as, at uh, Eagle House in uh, Murfreesboro. Uh, we're playing with this really great band called Boyfriend. 
Uh, we play with them like almost every tour uh, that we like that we end up going through Murfreesboro. They're like a synth. Uh, there's this genre I saw back on MySpace called Casio Core that I wasn't sure anybody like thought was real, but uh, they like are really committed to Casio Core screamo stuff. But nice. like, um, yeah, and we're playing in St. Louis. Uh, we're playing this band called Camp Counselor, and I think it's kind of funny because we're gonna have a bunch of people from Sarasota. Uh, all in different bands, uh, all in the same room, because uh, we're playing one of the person who booked it is from Sarasota, and I don't know, it's kind of fun. Uh, and then we're going to Kenosha, Wisconsin. I've never been up to Wisconsin before. We're playing in a spot called Despair, um, which is like a newer DIY spot. And then uh, we play in, I, I skipped Springfield, Illinois, but we're playing at uh, Bottom Bracket House. Uh, they're really good. Uh, like one of the first Farseek tours ever was with this band called Gear Conan. And this is like the new iteration of that, I think. Uh, they're really good. They're like a mathy emo band. Uh, and then we're playing, I think we're playing an acoustic show after the Wisconsin date in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, and then we play in uh, Plymouth, Michigan, which is at the PARC which I don't know too much about. Somebody was asking me for the address. I think it's like 650 Church Street. Gotcha. Yeah, I've never, uh, I've never been to Plymouth as far as I know. I'm going to come up to that show uh, when, you, when you guys are up there. It just happens to be one of the weekends that I'm, uh, I'm not camping, so I'm pretty stoked for it. But, yeah, I've never, I've never heard of the venue or uh, been to a show in Plymouth, so I'm pretty excited. Yeah, it's like an arts, uh, parks and rec type building. Um, you know, we're, I don't want to say like the YMCA, but, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. I've been out there. That sounds cool. I like when I first started going to shows. A lot of shows were like YMCA's and like VFW halls and shit like that. So that sounds like it could be cool. Uh, but yeah, and then we're going. We're heading back over to the uh, west coast of Michigan. After that, we're playing in St. Joe um, at a house show. I don't know much about that one. That one just got a, a announced or told to me today. Uh, and then we come back home and we play a house show in Columbus. Uh, people from Cellar, like the two people I work on Cellar or Rats Records with, run a house venue called Cellar Door. Uh, and it's pretty cool. Nice. If anyone's listening to this and wants to come play in Columbus, uh, hit up Rats Records. We'll book you at Cellar Door. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, any other upcoming plans uh, for after your tour? Um, we have we're playing with Warm Thoughts, which is like the drummer of Touche Amore's band. Nice. Uh, and yeah, in Columbus, that should be cool. But I think other than that, we're pretty much gonna lay low for the rest of the year while we wait on the album to get pressed, the vinyl, and just like practice, get all the do all the the fun background work to making an album cool, I guess, which is like what PR and music videos and pictures and shit like that. <laughs> um, awesome. So we're going to end the interview uh, with a song, Thanks for Saving My House uh, from Burning Down, off of that remastered version of Fear of Missing Out. Uh, would you have anything uh, you'd like to say about this song or any final words for the audience? Um, about the song... I think more people should write like platonic love songs for their friends. So that's what this song is. Uh, that's about it. Awesome. And uh, last yep. but not least, where can everybody find you online? Uh, you can find all of our music on or at farseek, F-A-R-S-E-E-K, dot bandcamp.com. 
And it's all free or pay what you can. It's on Spotify as well. And that's it. We're on Facebook, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. to a traditional uh, music segment this week. This is a collection of times that uh, true musicians were told they had to lip sync or pretend um, for a television taping and times they did not go along with it. Kind of like the Super Bowl? Yeah, kind of like it's on there. Nice. This is by Blend Guitar on YouTube. Maiden! Iron Maiden switches their instruments on stage. <laughs> they do it so obviously, too. <laughs> this is what you were talking about? Yeah. This was a big deal. People really like were up in arms about this. But I don't understand why. They only had a few minutes to set up the stage, and a lot of things can go wrong with the sound system. So the NFL forced them to perform with pre-recorded tracks, except the vocals. <laughs> Flea and Josh Klinghoffer left their instruments unplugged to make the circumstances more obvious. <laughs> I didn't know about this one. Yeah, they... I, I would. Yeah. But this is, this is good, though. Oasis. Noel and Liam switched roles. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's not the right guy. I didn't know he sang on this track. I didn't know he sang at all. He's not even pretending to play. They're getting Muse. I can't believe they would give up for this either. So what did, what did you pick? Members swap roles and mock what? the show. This is the song, brother. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm, I'm, I was just confused. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck's going it. on? 
This is a collection of artists who were told they had to lip sync for a video thing and they said fuck no. Get out there and Millie Vanilli. Iggy Pop? <laughs> oh no. I mean, in, the, in essence, they're just making a music video, I guess. Yeah. But they're supposed to be. Iggy refuses to lip sync and making it so obvious that the performance is staged. <laughs> He's like rolling around. <laughs> he doesn't even hold the microphone. <laughs> sing, Arpit, sing! I can't believe he's doing this. Oh, Nirvana, you know they would just be like, This is the most it. famous one, yeah. I love Chris Novoselic's land base on this. Kurt Cobain takes advantage of the live mic. Good job, Kurt. Just totally singing way beyond what it's supposed Jalapeno. Muse again? Oh, what you guys hell? got trapped two times? No excuse. No excuse. But it's a music Asia, so it's like the most famous Brazilian music radio station. Just fucking doing somersaults. <laughs> you can totally play guitar at all doing a somersault. I didn't know Muse was rocking. I was Muse kills it. Band. No, they kill it. And it's only three dudes. Really? Yeah, really? You're not a Muse fan? Good. Yeah, so that was a cool video. That was by Blend Guitar on YouTube. Check them out. The Under Channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram now. If you're a regular listener of The Under Channel, you know that we just went through a Season 7 preview, catch-up, recap-type thing with The Venture Brothers, one of the single greatest animated series there is. Um, it airs on Adult Swim. Um, so what we've decided that we're going to do with it now is we're going to do a weekly recap of season seven, episode by episode. So we're going to start today with episode one. The Curse of the Haunted Problem. The Curse of the Haunted Problem. So a great episode for anybody that's a Venture Brothers fan. This one started off hot and just kept on going. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, and I'm going to preface with, uh, although I said on the preview that I was going to watch a lot of Venture Brothers leading up to it, <laughs> I absolutely did not. What, I watched. Uh, nope, I watched half of Gargantuan 2. Ooh. And then I watched... Somebody's YouTube video of uh, explanation of the shallow gravy storyline. Nice. So that's that's all I actually watched. But I, I did watch the episode, Full and I was jacket. instantly reminded what about the show like drew magic. me in, right? Oh yeah. Uh, the atmosphere in the show is so heavy. So uh, the episode starts off with introductions for each character, and they're all being kind of haunted yeah, or it's being like a creeped giant out horror by episode. Yeah, different horror themes uh, like uh, Brock. The windows are uh, starting Fogging to fro- you know, fog and uh, ice up. Uh, it's just, uh, it was a really interesting atmosphere and way to bring all the yeah. characters I, in. I thought that they kind of used, like, The Exorcist, Poltergeist, um, 2001's A Space Odyssey, The Ring, mm. um, even Alien. Like, there are so many, like, of these classic nods. nods to all these horror movies in this episode. And it's funny, too, because, like, uh, Doc Venture... His problem is like all the technological things in his mansion are going wrong. He's being waken up by his ghost brother's alarm clock constantly, <laughs> you know. And then there's a song playing from the Burt Reynolds film Sharky's Machine going off nonstop, and they just it, it's messing with everybody out through the whole thing. It had a lot of uh, great um, throwbacks to previous seasons too. Like there's two guys that worked for the old Doctor Venture. Um, Swifty and Hector, so they bring them in the beginning of the episode. One was like the old punchy 
boxer and the handyman guy they work together so they're in the beginning of the episode and they see the statue like that i'm pretty sure that's from the exorcist when they you know stumble across problem mm-hmm. yeah. on the desert yeah the uh the cast of characters was on full display in oh, this. Yeah. Uh, they did There was no uh, the monarch. No um, monarch. No well, monarch. Yeah. Well, Say at the right end, right. but yeah. uh, well, that was just the preview for what would be next week. But other than that, the monarch um, doesn't make an appearance. But you get to see the order of the triad with one of the funniest scenes in the whole. In the I am Doctor Orpheus, master of mysticism. Um, I I don't want to do that introducing ourselves bits. Goofy, let's not die. Be goofy. I'm with Al. Maybe we could sing a Stevie Wonder song together. I <laughs> love the Order of the Triad. Yeah. So with everybody kind of freaking out and believing the house is haunted, the Order of the Triad comes in to try to figure out what's going on. Uh, and one of the funniest things I found about the show is uh, Dr. Orpheus is a real necromancer wizard. Like he appears in, he astro projects, he, he brings people back from the dead. Like he's done so much credible magic in front of dr venture but everything he says is hogwash yeah it's dr. like venture is a man of science it's like oh there's a ghost in this room and he's like a ghost you're probably just listening to, you're probably hearing the air conditioning turning on <laughs> it's like you've watched him like vanquish demons into another dimension and like you won't believe that he can you know bring a presence in so, yeah no rusty wants to uh just science explain everything they even use that phrase too because his son called the order of the triad in to help so, you know solve all these problems dean venture did and you know because he wasn't he didn't want to listen to his dad at all because his dad's just like no there's a computer glitch it's a computer glitch you know all these science ways to explain it and he's like, stop explaining to me and then on the side there's two other storylines uh running uh as well there is uh jonas venture uh the tiny venture mm-hmm. who's kind of like uh doing an indiana jones type explorer excavation um which they didn't do dig too far into what that was well basically yeah. that was the beginning of the episode because the that little brother he's dead he died you know gotcha okay. he died in the garden if you'd have finished it if you'd have oh, finished so all good. that in gargantua too you would know it was an hour long. Yeah, was long so anyways he dies um and so he in that flashback that's basically what it is it's a flashback to gargantua one if you remember from the second episode ever of the venture brothers bud man strong um the Gargantua one crashes to Earth, so he recovers the pieces that he could still recover, and that's where Problem comes from, and they bring that back. So that's kind of why you had Jonas Venture, JJ, gotcha. Gotcha. in there. And then the other main storyline is Hank, oh, uh, and so his good. story with uh, Wide Whale's daughter, um, Serena. So what is going on with like? Is he he works at a pizza place? He's not a rock star anymore. No, no, no. Hank, uh, since moving to uh, New York, got himself a job. He's a pizza delivery boy. He works for Vincenzo's Pizza. Well, not anymore. Well, no, not anymore. Now that uh, Wide Wheels got something. To so do at with one it. point, so he's dating like the mafia boss, kind of uh, his daughter. And uh, at one point, uh, he's visiting her, and he leaves his pizza hat. And when he gets back to his uh, his work. His boss has to fire him, and he's got, like, a black eye. And then he's, like, crying, and he gives him a free pizza. He's like, I'm so sorry. You're such a good worker, but unfortunately, you cannot work here anymore. <laughs> it's so funny. Yep. So he, And then he goes to get back into his little bike hover thing, and it's trashed, and there's a big on there, stay away from Serena from Wide Whale's henchmen and stuff. So that's yeah. pretty good. And her character's interesting because, like, she doesn't even try to hide that they're an item. Yeah. Like, she acts like any, like, teenage girl with, like, her boyfriend, right? It's like... They're like, if you come near her, we will fucking kill you. You need you to understand? We've just wrecked your $2 million like hovering bike. We will destroy you. And she's like, he's such a good boy. Why are you always picking on him? Like, it's like, you don't understand. It's not picking on him. It's basically like, 
we're gonna fucking kill you if you come near her anymore. It's, it's weird. That whole episode went from horror movie to that storyline, which is like a Spanish soap opera, almost like a Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, type it's, thing. it is. It's, it's a huge like. Romeo and Juliet theme yeah. right now. It's 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 fantastic. It's great too because then later on in the episode, Hank comes up with this idea of how he's gonna get in, you know, get in with you know Serena. So he goes to Wide Whale's mansion. And he, you know, he's like gives the, the the his henchman a pizza and stuff, and it it knocks him out. You know, it's like probably laced with something. So his henchmen are dressed as giant crabs, like like shrimp or something. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking weird. It's weird, yeah. Like nobody, everyone else is wearing like you know ball caps and like fucking uh, baseball shirts and whatever. And there's guys like walking around in full body armor, looking like crabs. Yeah, walking around <laughs> the city of New York, just like they stay away. So. What that introduces is one of my favorite characters in the Venture Brothers series, and it's just Hank's alter ego, not Batman. He's no longer being Batman anymore. He's grown up. He is now Enrico Matassa. Is that who that was? Yeah, that's Hank. You didn't come on. You didn't know that was Hank. I mean, I knew it was Hank. I didn't know it had like this was a long running oh, character. Yeah, yeah. I almost thought like I'm so, like, is he daydreaming this? Because it, no. why is he fucking Antonio Banderas and Desperado right now? He, he first started that character in season five in an episode called Mama's Voice, and uh, it's great. Enrico Matassa nice. is a, a hilarious character that they came up with for Hank. So he basically goes in and he, he takes out Wide Whale's men, and he he gets Wide Whale by himself. He takes Wide Whale's gun away from him. You know, he's doing all this stuff to impress him. And basically, all he's trying to do is get Wide Whale's approval so that he can date his daughter in the end. You know, he's like, I will come work for you. I am Enrico Metasa. It's a great character, the way they play him off. He's great. Yeah, he's uh, they're eternally the two brothers, naive. Like, they're stuck at being 14. Like, they don't ever understand the major scale of things. Like, they're, like, getting beat up by, like, superheroes. And it's like, it's like, is it because we left the oven on? Like, it's (laughs) like they really don't understand, like, what's going on in their their world. Um, But the main storyline ends uh, with with that ritual that Orpheus did, which, fantastic piece of world building. Um, they they show some ghosts. Any other show would have just gotten some maybe some ghosts, yeah. some visual. But they actually introduce the ghosts. They're like, oh, that's scra- uh, Scamp One. That was the first dog to die on the moon. <laughs> and then they do uh, you know victims of the venture memory fire, like all these old employees with no eyes and no face. You know, so it's pretty cool piece. So we talked about their world building in yeah. that show. Like even that small example there, they, it's a great example yeah. of how they just just constantly bring depth into the storyline to keep it's just a beautifully written show yeah so i'll let you talk about the ending so the ending is uh you know they're doing that seance and the whole time dr venture is just annoyed with it because he's got this candle helmet thing on his head and he believes it's a computer glitch it's just a computer glitch to him the whole time so they find out that all these things are coming from that this display they have in his lobby of his giant mansion thing and it's the problem, which they brought back down from his brother had brought and put into the lobby. And his brother was oblivious to what actually was going on with it. He had no idea, like what he just thought it was a cool piece of artifact to put in the lobby as a tribute yeah, to his the, father. It's, it's a Venture Brothers museum. Yeah. Like they even have people going through doing tours, tour like kids. Stuff, yeah. yep. So they're they're fi- trying to figure out what it is, and Orpheus is like, the demon is inside of that machine. <laughs> So they go over there to go get it, and like they pry it open. And when they pry it open, you get one of the coolest surprises in a while for the Venture Brothers. And this one made me go, oh, crap. And they open it up, and this is what made me think of Alien because of, like, when they in the first Alien movie, when they kill Ash, 
and they pop his head to the side. You see like those tube intestines mm-hmm. and stuff like that coming yeah. out of it. So inside of that thing is Venture Senior's head. And he's wired, hard-lined, mainframed into the building. Yep. And he's got all these wires into his head that's keeping him alive. And they, it actually, the robot feeds off organic material because you keep seeing this thing come out and, like, eat rats or mice yep. or cockroaches or something. And so they're in Doc, he, he Doc idolized his, his father. Rusty Venture idolized his father. Um, and then he died on him all of a sudden. So he can't believe that his father's been entombed in this thing for so long. And he's trying to talk to him. And then Pete White, the albino, who's like Billy Quizboy's like guy. Yeah, and albino, the albino scientist, he was working on like the scientific reason for this for, for this, Dr. Venture. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we skipped over that whole part of the storyline. You're right, yeah. So he's doing the science work, you know, because he believes somebody hacked into the mainframe. So he's, Pete White is trying to find the hacker. And so he comes running up the stairs, and he's got an axe in his hand. He's all freaked out. He's like, I know where it's coming from. It's coming from inside the house. You know, that classic line from a horror movie. And he comes in with this. He's like, I got to sever the main line. And so it's Doc Venture's father who's been programmed and wired into this house. And here comes Pete White, and he just axes right through all that stuff and just kills him. And it was finally Doc Venture's. He get to he got to reconnect with his father, and before he could even say a word, Pete White just comes in and wipes the whole thing out. Yeah, but then the final piece that you hear is Orpheus yelling, "He's trying to run," as in the body that the the human or inorganic robotic version of the father is alive and it's trying to move out of that machine. That's what I took from it. Yeah, it's so weird. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, you're. Venture Brothers uh, super fan. Oh, yeah. Where would you rank it among debuts, season debuts? Season debuts? It doesn't beat all that in Gargantua 2, but it's it's in the top five for sure, top three. Cause, well, there's only seven, seven seasons. Yeah. So top, top six. <laughs> Not Gargantua, but definitely in the top six. Top three. It was yeah. great. It was, it was a good. It was fantastic. A, it was, yeah. I've been so excited for this since they said it was coming out this August to see a new Venture Brothers episode, and this satisfied me. Yep. And we're not normally, we are normally going to do some predictions of what we uh, is going to think, what we think is going to happen next week. But uh, episodes one and two were leaked. Aaron already watched uh, episode two. I didn't. Uh, so we're not going to talk too much about it right now, but we'll let you know what uh, was in the preview. Um, and I have some questions about it. So first off, it uh, shows the monarch being captured by Wide Whale. Um, hasn't really shown how the monarch got there. So uh, that's one piece. The question I have is uh, the next character they introduce, which is an axeman who has no skin. So he's like a, a human that has all been skinned completely, and he's got that kind of like red veiny look like you would see in like Contra, kind of. Okay. Um, but he has an axe and a cape, and he's like, you know, he's coming to kill. Who is he trying to kill? I can't specifically I th- remember who I he's like. I think right now you're about. describing Red Death. And you still haven't watched season six, so you don't know who the amazing man of Red Death is. So he's a skinless guy a red, with an axe. He's a and red a cape. skull, right? Red yeah. skull yeah. riding on a horse. Well, he wasn't riding a horse. He, he, he was in a bar. He had a Grim Reaper scythe. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. Red Death. Oh. Watch season six. I, uh, season seven's already started. Oh, man. And finally, uh, the last uh, little preview they showed is Dr. Mrs. the Monarch uh, standing on a wharf in some like third world country, uh, looking like she's at a funeral. And then another woman who looks like she's at the same funeral comes up and punches her. The Under Channel. It's an hour you can't escape. 
this is a preview for an interview uh, that we did with uh, Lewis C. Justin, uh, the co-owner, uh, operator of Massacre Video, which is a, a film distribution label um, that digs up uh, super obscure uh, exploitation, oddball, sleaze movies. Uh, and reproduces them, gives them like really high-end DVD, Blu-ray quality, uh, you know, slip cases, uh, steel books, like, you know, high-quality material. Okay. So uh, we'll start. We're going to go through three trailers. The very first one we're going to show is called The Devil. So this is a Taiwanese movie from 1981, uh, directed by Jen Chia Chang. So we're all familiar. Ali Curtis. Oh yeah, totally. We're all familiar with the kind of exploitation boom of the early 80s uh, when the in the U.S. everything got super sleazy and kind of campy. Yeah. Well, that happened in the all over the world, right? Um, our movie industry is massive, so there's a lot of copycats that happen throughout the world. So if mainstream media is making you know, slasher films, crazy oddball movies, you see what else exists out there. This is one of those examples. Jesus. Sometimes you wonder if we're stealing it from them. Yeah, this is reasonably brutal. Oh, my God. It makes sense. So the base idea of this movie is a witch uh, who casts a spell and it turns your insides into snakes and worms. That's a good idea. I'm assuming you don't want to piss her off. Oh, what the she love horror movies. Uh, I don't know about this stuff. It's pretty graphic. I mean, this is shit in, in 81, man. It looks good for yeah. 30, 60 years old. I'm more of the cheesy 80 slasher films. This is a little... Uh, this, is paper. this is so cheesy. I don't remember watching people get disemboweled in Friday the 13th movies. you love that movie movies. Phantasm. That movie sucks. I hate that movie. How do you hate that movie? Eating mustard. Ugh. If you haven't seen this trailer and you consider yourself a horror fan and you're one of those people who constantly complains about the use of uh, CGI instead of practical effects, this yeah. is probably the movie for you. You need to check this out, absolutely. Practical effects on this are amazing. No, it's very impressive. Viewer discretion is advised. <laughs> not turning into the hole, I promise. No, no. <laughs> Is that his butt? Is that the color of roots? 
during the interview, but basically what he does is when he finds out about these movies, he has to like search for whoever owns the rights to it, because most of these movies are owned by out-of-business movie studios, and like they're like, you know, they're in somebody's will, or they're like bought as a part of like, hey, I want to buy this movie, well, if you buy that movie, we'll give you an extra million dollars if you throw in all these other ones, so, uh, he said it's pretty interesting having, uh, what you get sometimes, if he's bought the rights to a movie, and receives everything he ever did, like boxes and boxes and boxes of like receipts in between. This is a movie trailer, but I feel like we just watched the whole yeah, movie. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the ending. Well, I, he's just getting burned alive. I really probably can't watch anything from Massacre Video because I'm such a wuss when it comes to watching horror movies. Like... This might might get by because it's not. I don't think it's actually going to be horror yeah, as much as it's as supposed to be scares. like graphic. Yeah, I can't do right, jump scares. Yeah. I'm terrified <laughs> of jump scares. All right, so that was The Devil from 1981. Next up is a movie that we talked quite a bit about in the actual interview. Uh, this is Mr. No Legs. Reminds me of uh, Eddie Murphy. Does the title give away the plot? This is from uh, 1978. Yep, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Base story. Two cops battle a drug dealer and his wheelchair-bound enforcer. <laughs> Can you imagine just getting your ass kicked by a guy who has no legs? I don't want to shit out this movie, but this reminds me of, uh, of absence, can when see? Mac and Dan oh, uh, Dennis and all those guys did the Lethal Weapon movie in Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, yeah. I got the killer, sir. Oh, You know you can actually watch like all that uh, parody on, on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody cut all, all the parts and it's one big film. Nice. Says there's a leak in your territory. So this is directed by uh, Rico Browning. Um, I looked at some of the other films, similar kind of oddball exploitation stuff. And he's actually most known for directing 37 episodes of Flipper. You guys remember the show Flipper? And then, uh, he was also the uh, second director for shooting Caddyshack. So all of the uh, extra scenes, he was okay. in charge of shooting. So that's pretty good. So when you hear about uh, those terrible oddball uh, drive-in movies of the 70s, oh, yeah. this is what they were talking about. This is cool. Nice yeah. This is like so bad it's good. Plan on starting your own operation here? Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Mr. No Legs. Don't miss it. I forgot it was called Mr. No Legs. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't bury the lead, did they? I think Mr. No Legs would be a fun time to watch. Yeah. Uh, last but not uh, least, uh, this is Night Pulse, uh, which is actually from this year uh, by uh, Gonzo Oddball director Damon Packard. It's our reality now, Mr. DuPont, isn't it? Oh, 
What, what's going on? It's like touching jelly. It's fucking weird. in the movie oh, is planning to kill college. everybody else in the movie. We're going into the <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> the zeitgeist at the time was that American filmmakers would have the opportunity to become auteurs. Do you know the auteur theory? Oh, that opportunity's past, my friend. No, no, no. The single house movie theaters are the past. Multiplexes are the future. So that interview will be a part of uh, episode 010. I say 0010. 010. Thank you for listening to The Under Channel today. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Visit theunderchannel.com for more. And don't forget to find our show on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or any of the other spots that you find your favorite podcasts on. Click the like button, download, rate us, whatever it takes. Show the love and share. <laughs>